Hold on to your butt. Welcome to episode 39 of the Sip Art Breakfast Club podcast. Joined, as always, by my co-host, Mary, the chillin' and grillin' frosty queen of Kim Cardine. <laughs> I am only Darren. Hello, Mary. You are not only Darren. I Stop say that. it. I I am only Darren. No, you're an awesome Civil War nerd. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> he gets the DQ discount, apparently. Employee I know, well, discount. That's I gotta get that. I gotta take care of that. Not about a good blister <laughs> or a hot day. Anyway, so how are you? How was your week? How was I? I haven't talked to you since, well, who knows when, but it's been a while. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, living the dream. Living the dream. <laughs> Living the dream. Had a good live the other day. We had a lot of fun with Dang. that. We get to continue our Chancellorsville podcast. The I know we got some business to take care of first, as always. But I thought we had a lot of fun with that podcast last Dang. week. I, we're going to finish it up today. I think the second half is better than the first half, Mary. It is. It's and very think, interesting. And I think a lot of people don't really study a lot of it. I think they think that once Jackson gets hurt, that's pretty much the end. Yeah. But there's so much intrigue and so much that goes on to it. We're going to talk about that a little bit here in a little bit. But we got, like we said, we got some stuff we got to do first. So do. Let, let me do the honors today, Mary. What are you drinking? I am drinking Fog Day Pale Ale from Square Brew here in Godrich. And I'm drinking out of my John Reynolds mug because Reynolds obviously figures into the Battle of Chancellorsville. But the reason I chose Fog Day is because Hooker is going to be in a little bit of a fog during this Ooh. battle. Wow, someone's spoiling the surprise Ooh. when we talk about this. Anyway, I am drinking Warren India Pale Ale. I'm drinking this one because Governor K. Warren is at this battle. He's the engineer for Joe Hooker. People don't realize that he was here. People associate him with Gettysburg and mm -hmm. some stuff later on, Five Forks, but he was here as well. And even though the Union Army lost this one, unexpectedly, well, it's very expectedly, actually, I'm drinking my Northern Civil War Champions coffee nice. mug. So that's where we are. So when we last talked, we were talking about how that battle ended. But, you know, let's uh, real quick, we'll go back and just kind of, simple, you know, go back a little bit and talk about what happened. So Chancellorsville, you know, we talked about this before, beginning April 30th, 1863. Hooker had an overall plan. He takes over. He reorganizes the entire army. He wants to force Lee out of his river defenses along the Rappahannock River mm -hmm. outside of Fredericksburg. So the Battle of Fredericksburg had finished up a couple months before, and the army has been sitting around. Burnside tried his mud march and that ended and failed. Uh, Hooker is in charge. Um, and so what he wants to do is he wants to force him out. He's going to plan a two-prong attack. Uh, he's going to have, which is going to fail. And he's going to have Sedgwick, John Sedgwick. You've, maybe you've heard of him from the Sixth Corps. Elephant Man. The Elephant Man. He was going to attack Fredericksburg and he was going to basically create a diversion is what he was going to do. He was going to have George Stoneman's cavalry who failed equally. He was going to kind of go around the rebels to try to cut off their supplies. What Hooker ultimately wanted to do was take the remaining corps, go around, cross the Rappahannock and cross the Rapidan, get behind Lee's defenses, force him out of those river defenses, get him on the run, defeat him at the ground of his choosing, Mary. And as we know, he got aggressive right when he got to the point of he was going to attack and really push on. Had himself a little pee down the leg situation. He chickened out and he ultimately decided to fight a defensive battle right into Lee's hands. Yep, he did. And that's why the 11th Corps was in the position they were. The 11th Corps was on that far Union right. What happened with that was they were in the air. Oliver Otis Howard, hallowed be thy name, was in charge <laughs> of the 11th Corps. And he was in the air. He was not anchored against a river. He does not a have his best day here. He really doesn't. He does He does not. Stonewall Jackson is going to have a very audacious plan where he is going to take his men, two-thirds of, of Lee's remaining infantry at the site. He's going to take them on a 12-mile run 
around the Union's uh, flank, and he's going to attack them, and he's going to ultimately push them back, and it's going to be very successful. But unfortunately for old TJ, he is going to get a little too aggressive that, that night, and he is going to find himself getting shot by his own troops because of his over-aggressiveness. Really, it kind of stalls. So one thing Jackson does do well is he does set up a hierarchy as far as what happens if something happens to mm-hmm. him. He originally has AP Hill as a second, but Hill gets hit with some artillery, so he's out pretty quick too. His second after that is Jeb Stewart. Now, Jeb Stewart, he was a cavalry guy, as you know, had never commanded infantry before. So he's going to take over what's left of Jackson's course. We're talking about the divisions of Heath, Raleigh Colston, Robert Rhodes. So he's going to find himself in a big spot. Now, he's going to make the decision. It's getting dark out. He just saw Jackson get shot. He just saw Hill get hurt. That he's going to basically throw the brakes up and he's going to wait till the next day to start. So on the night of May 2nd, 1863, it's kind of a weird situation because the Union is in a good defensive situation for the most part. The Rebs are kind of winning the day a little bit for the most part. They're doing what they want, but they're split up. When they go to get to the next morning, Lee's primary goal is to get the army together. Meanwhile, John Sedgwick is still hanging out in Fredericksburg, and he isn't moving yet. And so we'll talk about how this whole thing comes together as we go into May 3rd and explaining how the whole thing plays itself out. One thing to mention, too, about Jeb Stewart is we are recording on the day that he is shot at Yellow Tavern. Yep. And you know, it's not even a tavern. No, it's not. I know I know someone who took his friends to Surratt's Tavern and told them it was a tavern, and they got pissed when we got there and it wasn't a tavern. Ha-ha. <laughs> I do want to go to Yellow Tavern and Surratt's Tavern sometime, but um, yeah, Jeb Stewart killed today. Well, not killed, shot by a Canadian. Yeah, sure John was. So how we find ourselves in the morning of April 3rd? Of, I keep saying April, May 3rd. <laughs> May 3rd. Okay, I don't know why I keep doing it. I have to edit that crap right now. <laughs> Actually, May I can 3rd, edit okay. it out. <laughs> okay, you, you won't. You always say that, but you never do. So Hooker, we mentioned before, he is pushing himself back. He's going to basically put himself in a defensive line. Because there are children who listen, I'm going to describe their line as looking like a popsicle with a kind of tip on the end. <laughs> I totally would not have done that. north to south, Okay. I'm just saying, okay, call call it what it is, but that's what it is. So There can't um, be children so, listening to this because we all know I'm going to drop the word fuck at some right. point. Isn't it funny? It's in that position and basically Hooker gets dicked today. Oh, well, he didn't have the balls. That was the problem. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so Hooker's army is going to be basically going north to south uh, in the shape of, like I said, a popsicle. Okay. <laughs> um, Reynolds' uh, first corps is, is is going to be there as well. You're going to have him on the right of the Rapidan. Meade's fifth corps is going to be on Reynolds' left. Slocum and his 12th corps is going to be further to the south. Darius Couch's second corps is going to be on Slocum's left. And Howard is put in the baby chair he's, in the corner. He's put in the corner to secure U.S. Ford. He's basically, I, I would say he's in like a timeout position. <laughs> he's Poor put guy. in a place... He's put in a place that's probably the single safest place in the battlefield. He's going to, he's, he's, you'll notice he is now not in the air. He is anchored along the, the Rappahannock River. So yeah. he, he is in a place that, realistically speaking, no one's going to hit. Now, it's probably not so much an insult because his corps did get wrecked the day before. Yeah, so they they're did. not going to be put in a situation to do that. The Confederates on the morning of May 3rd, Stewart is going to be, like we said, he's going to be in charge of uh, Jackson's corps. So he's going to be on Sickles Front going west to east on the Union right. Dare I say the shaft of the battle line. Mm-hmm. Okay, on the popsicle there. There you go. Okay. But we mentioned before, they're split up, these reps, and they need to get together. In between Lee and Stewart is a place called Hazel Grove, yep. which is an which is an undulation not far from the Chancellor. Sears Mansion, the describes Chancellor it as a rolling hill, I think. 
Well, Sears is wrong. <laughs> and so basically Richard Anderson and Lafayette McClaws are going to be facing Slocum and Couch, basically going southeast to northwest at the angle on that Union left. Jubal Early, just to set the, set the dance card here, the dance floor, is back in Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. But here's the problem with old Jubal is he's got about 10,000 guys. But he's kind of set up in the wrong place. He's got most of his troops along that Prospect Hill area of that first day of the Battle of Fredericksburg. And he only has a couple of troops on Maurice Heights. So John Sedgwick is on the old Richmond Road, which is parallel to the Rappahannock. So Lee's primary goal is get the band back together again. Mm-hmm. That's his primary goal. He wants to reconnect Stuart and his army because without when you're split up like that, you could be beat detail. There's no real communication. The supplies are already running low, which we'll talk yeah. about. And, and still, they're heavily, heavily outnumbered. It's very risky what Lee has done with splitting his army here. And the idea to split the army was was actually something he and Jackson came up with the night before Jackson was shot. So the night before that, Jackson attacked Howard's 11th Corps. But it's a very, very risky move. One thing to to note about Hazel Grove was that E.P. Alexander said it was a beautiful position for artillery. It was, and we'll we'll talk about that. So, you know, now Hooker, at this point in the morning, we talked before about how he lost his nerve, he lost that initiative is what he really did. But he's not preparing to attack. What he's doing is he's digging in. He's figuring Lee's going to attack him. He's going to fight defensive. He's going to sit back and wait. He's sitting back. You know what he's doing? He's grilling and chilling, Mayor, is what he's doing. (laughs) With his frosty or his blizzard. He's he's got his blizzard. He's doing that. (laughs) So even though... He has a gigantic numerical advantage. Even though Lee's army is divided, and even though he's holding really two artillery platforms, including Hazel's Groves, he's not going to fight. He's going to sit back, which is a crucial, crucial mistake. So we mentioned Hazel Grove, which is on the tip of the Popsicle, Mary. You really want to go with there. It's a great artillery position, and it's also a great observation point. Mm -hmm. So the Union has, you no. Know, they have those balloons. They can they can see what's going on. They know exactly what's going on. But regardless, it's a great vantage point. By dawn on May 3rd, this is where Hooker really starts to really screw up, right? Yep. He is going to kind of entrench. He's going to pull his troops back from Hazel Grove. He's having communication issues as well, and he is kind of spread out a little bit. He wants to reconnect from the main line of command. So, because Hazel Grove is exposed on three sides. Yep. Right, it's up a hill, but it's still exposed, okay? Salient. So, he wants to... Sh- he, exactly. He wants to shrink the line. So maybe it was in the pool. Who knows? But it's, now it's shrunk. Okay. He is going to basically pull his men back. First rule in military, Mary, is you don't give up the high ground, no. right? You hear in all these battles. And that's literally what he does. He gives the Confederates, Hazel Grove, a fantastic artillery platform, to your point, on a friggin' silver platter. Yeah, just for now, E.P. Alexander. It was one of Lee's primary goals. We got to figure out how to take that hill. All of a sudden, they just give it to him. They're going to take that high ground. Yep. And by 5.30 in the morning, which is this whole thing's going to start, he takes it unopposed. So they're preparing for a fight. It's like you walk into a movie theater yep. to see the movie, and, and the movie's over, and everybody's walking out. What? Where'd everybody go? It was, yep. it, you know, it's, it's, it's like that. Yeah, and so, Alexander just, he fucking crowds it with his artillery. Like, he just, he goes to town with it. He takes complete advantage of it. And the person that has been asked to go away from that position at Hazel Grove is Dan Sickles. Is Sickles. Now, yeah. just picture, Hazel, Hazel Grove, you're up there. James Archer, his brigade at, at AP Hill is the one who gets up there first. He's going to capture 100 prisoners. They're just walking away. They leave. Just leave four guns. Screw it. All right, all you are seeing. And so to your point, he's going to load up the hill with artillery. They've also going to put guns on that plank road. So now you're going to have a situation where the Rebs are going to be at a golden opportunity 
on artillery. It is probably the single best artillery situation they had in the entire war. When you look at it, guns, placement, everything. E.P. Alexander must have been, he, he must have been. Um, he must have been know. in heaven to be able to throw those balls around like that. Oh, kidding me? <laughs> he totally was, you know. So, <laughs> but so the Rebs are out in control of this high ground. So Stuart, now remember, he's a cavalry guy, right? And so he just knows, rah, rah, go, 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 go. He's going to take his three divisions from the West under Heath, Colston, and, uh, and Rhodes. And they're going to be on that Union right. They're going to attack. It is going to be brutal bloodshed. So you're going to have a situation where the artillery is raking them. You're going to have hand-to-hand combat. You're going to have the artillery going to be brutal. You're going to have 18,000 casualties in five hours here. Okay. Now, this is part of the battlefield where the artillery was causing fires and the Union troops, the Confederate troops, couldn't get up and they burned to death. Oh, my God. They were lying in the field because they couldn't they couldn't get to them. Yeah. But it's a huge, huge slugfest. We'll talk about the carnage of this thing as well. But the other place that the Confederates had was a place called uh, Fairview, which is another undulation there where they put where they put weapons Rolling up. Hill. Okay, sure. Okay, you're wrong. But <laughs> anyway, so meanwhile, Lee is going to demonstrate on that Union left using McClaws and Anderson. So he's just going to, he's basically wants to pin them there. Now, he's still expecting Hooker to move troops around. He's thinking, okay, if I don't demonstrate on this side with Anderson and, uh, and McClaws, they're going to move troops over to bail out. They're going to bail out the other side. He starts to demonstrate while Stewart's doing his primary attack. But you know what Hooker does? Nothing. He doesn't do anything. Nope. And so Lee's probably thinking, well, he's li- unlikely, you know, enforce these people anyway. Now, this is where it gets interesting, okay? Hooker is at this place called the Chancellor Mansion or Chancellor House. Now, when the battle starts, there are seven women in this house, the Chancellor family, all women. Sue Chancellor, she gets quoted afterwards about what a complete, absolute disaster this battle was and how the death of Karen, she talked about it. Hooker is going to basically message at this point. He's going to see what's going on. And this is early in the morning on the 3rd. He's going to message John Sedgwick, who was slow as an elephant, Mary. Is he yep. there? Okay. <laughs> and he's at Fredericksburg. And the previous days, it was kind of wishy-washy messages. It's almost like take this hill of practicable type thing. Yeah, they were very but vague. They- and Sedgwick was not the type of person to, he was good. But then when he was kind of left to his own devices, which he is at Fredericksburg, he's like, um, what do I do? And plus, the orders this were time, fucking vague. This time, yeah, it's kind of like you're from your Facebook status updates. What the hell's you talking about at the time? Vague booking. <laughs> but <laughs> this time, he sends Cedric a message and says, black and white, I want you here. Mm-hmm. Here's what I want you to do. I need for you to take Maurice Heights first. Mm-hmm. That's your first goal. Once you get there, I need you to reform your army and move west on the, on the turnpike and the plank road to Chancellorsville to help me out and get in Lee's rear. So now, okay, Cedric's like, okay, I got plain orders. This is what I'm going to do. And again, this is a really good plan by Hooker, right? Mm-hmm. It re- but it was certainly part of the original plan. Cedric's going to take his 40,000 guys, and he's going up against 10,000 of Jubal Early's guys, which is a four-to-one ratio. And there was a rumor that they were going up against Longstreet's men. Like, there is this rumor yeah. going around that they it wasn't Early's mm-hmm. men, it was Longstreet's men. I do have a couple of cool soldiers' quotes from this, from the Union side. Right. Colonel Thomas S. Allen said, boys, you've got to take those heights. When the signal forward is given, you will double quick. You will not fire a gun and you will not stop until you are given to the order to halt. You will never get that order. And he says this to men from Wisconsin. Hiram Burnham says, boys, I have got a government contract, a thousand rebels potted and salted and got to have them in less than five minutes. 
knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Wisconsin guy, you know. Yeah. But the thing that's going to hurt early is that he has position, his troops in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. He only has a skeleton crew up on Maurice Heights. He's got Barksdale, he's got Harry Hayes, Louisiana Tigers. The rest of them are at Prospect Hill, which is south. So it's seven o'clock in the morning on the thirds. This is kind of simultaneously what's going on. So we got to kind of pay attention because this is all kind of going at the same time. So at seven o'clock in the morning, Cedric is going to move his, is going to move four divisions. He's going to have John Gibbon with the second corps. He's going to have John Newton, Albion Howe, and William Brooks from his corps. So he's going to have a bunch of guys early. He's also got a message from Lee. He's told by Lee, which of course he first misinterprets because that's how it always seems to work out with miscommunication. He's told by Lee, if you're attacked by a large force, you got to basically pull back and vacate the town. Just get, let them bring it Vacate the it. dance floor. Right? But get between Sedgwick and Richmond in case he's going to go for Richmond. But don't go far. Don't disappear. Because if he starts to go towards Chancellorsville, you need to go chase him down. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what's going to happen. So, but he just basically says, you don't go far, but wait till I tell you what to do. And so the day before, the second he'd screwed up that order, he was told that same thing and he left and just had to run back. Yep. Was they, you know, so he, he does finally get back. It is Julie early and all. So back at Chancellorsville, between that 7 and 10 o'clock in the morning, is some of the heaviest fighting in the entire war. Yep. People don't realize how bloody May 3rd was. It's we'll going to be the second bloody bloodiest day. Oh, there you go. There's the, there's the answer. <laughs> anyway. It's the second bloodiest day when it's all said and done. I know you love those, those catches. You know, so it was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> after, of course, after Antietam. So yeah. we'll talk about those numbers later. But it's just a brutal, brutal it day. Is. A lot of people yeah. realize. On Hazel Grove, the Rebs are going to continue to pound the Union Army line with Rebel art- with the artillery. Yeah. While this is basically being attacked, it's, it's interesting, too, because when you look at the infantry side, you have the opposite of Fredericksburg, right? You have the Confederates now attacking a strongly fortified defensive end, yep. which is exactly the opposite. It's just kind of funny how, how it is. So mm-hmm. we have to we get to nine o'clock in the morning, Mary, on May, on May 3rd. Ooh, okay? This old, is old, an old, ominous yeah. time. Yeah. So old Hooker, he's hanging out at the Chancellorsville house. He just, he's doing his thing. He's sitting on the porch when a shell from Hazel Grove, which he vacated, hits a, a partition, hits a who knows what it is a plank hits a beam where the hell it is it hits him and falls down and knocks him right on the canoggin right in the head yep. knocks him out cold he's out he's like you on a saturday night he's gone right <laughs> and he's lying there out cold it's a bloodless injury no one knows what the hell happened they know he's alive but he's not bleeding so i'm like okay yeah they don't know what concussions are at the time and he got a good one he was out cold for a full hour yeah a full hour now do you remember we talked before about how thomas jackson he left a secession plan yep right he said if this happens i want ap hill if ap hill gets hit i want jeb stewart hooker doesn't do that he doesn't so they all stand around picking their nose with no leadership yeah and the reason for that too is because dan butterfield his chief of staff who would have been able to speak up and say okay this is who needs to be in charge he's back at falmouth and the thing that hooker is doing when he gets hit on the head is that he's reading a dispatch from Sickles who's saying, I need fucking reinforcements, dude. Send me reinforcements. So he's knocked unconscious. As Darren said, he's out for like an hour. There's no plan for who is supposed to take over. AOP headquarters basically just goes silent for the rest of the day. Nobody knows what the fuck is going on. Darius Couch should have been the guy, but he was there and he just didn't do it. The other option was George Meade. Now, George Meade, it's interesting about George Meade at this time, Mary. He finds himself on Stewart's left flank, and they're just asking to be hit. I mean, mm-hmm. begging for it. But Meade is told to just fight defensively, not to attack. 
So he sits there and he's 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 like that guy in the meme rubbing his hands behind the tree. Yeah. He's like, I can get these guys. So he writes a letter real quick to Hooker. Now he doesn't know Hooker is looking at the stars and dreaming at this, yep. at this very moment. He says, I'm, I got these guys outnumbered. I have a great, I can roll their entire line. Meade sends him that letter while he was out. And of course he never hears back. Nope. So he he misses he misses a gigantic opportunity. Now Hooker is going to wake up about an hour later, two IPAs short of Marion on Tuesday morning. <laughs> and the thing about it though is he wakes up and he's groggy, mm-hmm. but he refuses to give up command. He doesn't want to do it. He's like, nope, not going to do it. He actually does get that letter from Mead at this point and yep. reads it and says, no, you're not doing it. Yep. And so they're like, what? And the thing about it though is all these generals at this point at nine o'clock in the morning, okay. They're thinking he's loaded. They think he's drunk. Yeah, and at this point, Hooker had so, stopped. Hooker had stopped drinking at this point. He'd stopped drinking just prior to the Battle of Chancellorsville, hadn't he? Yeah, and they had no idea what the school was. All I know, he's went to sleep for an hour, woke up, and he's groggy, and he's yeah. slurring his words. So what else? I mean, honestly, what else are you gonna? I mean, gonna think so? Well, there's um, some good quotes that, like, one someone said, like, for the remainder of the day, he was wandering and unable to get any ideas into his head. So they would try talking to him, and like, it was like blank have stare. You had a back, have you ever had a back concussion? Uh, no, I haven't. I have, shockingly. And what happens is, is you can't focus. You can't think straight. You, mm-hmm. Your memory is shot. It's just, it's just not there. It's just a, it's a weird, weird feeling. Mm-hmm. He probably was vomiting. He probably had headaches. And, but he clearly couldn't. I mean, in that He's situation. Right. And you got to be at the top. You guys, and this is the second bloodiest day in the Civil War as in, in progress. You need to have your A game, right? Yep. He doesn't have it. But he's not going to give up command. And that's part of the problem. So by 930 in the morning, Jeb Stewart's going to move up. He's going to move northeast. He's going to capture that fair view, that other undulation I talked about. Rolling hill. Okay. And he's going to get behind Sickles' line. He's also, you know, he's behind Hazel Grove. So now the Rebs have really two good artillery platforms. Now, Sickles is going to counterattack anyway. He's going to freaking YOLO it. He's going to attack, right? Yeah. He's going to recover Fairview. He's going to get there and he's going to hold it again. And he pushes Stewart back. And that's really the best moment at that time. So while he gets it, he gets a message, as do all the generals in the Corps, from Hooker, who inexplicably sends an order to all his generals to retreat across all lines, including Fairview, which they just captured, give it back up again, and they want to fall back. And they're going to create a new salient, kind of like a U now. And they're going to condense their army around US-4 along the Rappahannock River. And they can't believe it. I mean, they're like, okay, now we're giving up ground. We give up, we let you walk on the high ground in Hazel Grove. We actually capture Fairview again. And now you're just going to tell us to walk from it. So they do. And so by 10 o'clock in the morning, picture the scene. Robert E. Lee, and Jeb Stewart, they find themselves are standing at the Chancellor House, probably mm-hmm. high fiving. Can you friggin' believe this? What we did today? They are, you know, they are completely high, they are completely psyched because that was their goal. Now they're connected, and they they lost a lot of guys, admittedly, but Hooker gave them the high ground twice, and now the Reb Army, while Hooker is digging in, they're going to set up their line that's going to finally get connected. Yeah, and like there is a point where, like, it's funny when Meade writes hooker he actually says i can flank jackson the union does not know about jackson at this point yeah they don't and you mean that's probably you'd think they would hear through rumors or whatever but that's probably by design they're keeping it quiet right because if they know that jackson's gone like how badly mead said i can beat jackson right now and he didn't get to do it and you know what probably sucks for mead for that is you think about mead at fredericksburg um, or Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, um, Fredericksburg, 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 
Meade probably made the most progress that day and he broke Stonewall Jackson's lines and he Mm -hmm. had to fall back because he couldn't get reinforcements. He's probably thinking, Meade is probably thinking, fuck, I can finally get this bastard now. I can Mm -hmm. finally get him. And he's begging Hooker to let him go do it because he and and Reynolds especially have fresh troops and they could have done it. And the one who was supposed to help Meade out, who could have helped Meade out at Fredericksburg was John Reynolds to get Jackson. Yeah. Like, can you imagine how pissed off Meade must have been? I, I, that, that... You, you, can, you can imagine. You can imagine. But speaking of Frederick's burb, okay, <laughs> we'll, we'll jump real quick back what's going on over there. So early in the about now, go back a couple hours, about 7 o'clock in the morning now, Sedgwick is going to attack early on Maurice Heights. Now, he's going to have given Newton Howe and Brooks up. We talked about fighting that smaller force under Hayes' Louisianans and William Barksdale's Mississippians, okay? So early, we mentioned before, he pulled out and he went back. Sedgwick... His first, he's going to attack three times. His mm-hmm. first two attacks are a dumpster fire, just like the first Fredericksburg in December. They're going to go up the hill. They're going to stop. They're going to shoot. They're going to yeah. reload. They're going to get gunned down. Hey, you know, heavy casualties. There's no freaking way that you can take this hill. I don't care how many soldiers are up there. You can't do it with that style. Now, this is where Sedgwick gets smart. You got to give him credit for this. Mm-hmm. He has a good memory, like an elephant memory. So here we go, right? <laughs> and he is going to call a truce, a temporary ceasefire. He's going to call timeout with the white flag because he wants to recover his troops. While he's doing that, he is going to send a scout up to Marie's Heights to see how many people the Rebs actually have. And they are surprised to see that it's just Barksdale and it's just Hayes. And they have a huge numerical advantage. So he's going to change the idea for that third attack. So instead of shooting, reloading, stopping, he's going to tell them to go full bayonet and they're going to run full speed up the hill and not stop at all, not even shoot. Now, now they're going to get their ass kicked. A lot of guys are going to get hurt. They're going to get killed, but they're going to take it because they're going to overwhelm that smaller force. So all of a sudden, you know, the Rebs find themselves getting pushed off of that. By John Sedgwick. And we got to tell real quick, we had to talk about Sedgwick. We haven't yeah. talked about him in a while. So, mm-hmm. you know, he's a good New Englander, Mary, from Cromwell, Connecticut, born in 1813, um, the grandson of Revolutionary War General, and U.S. Military Academy, 1837, 24th out of 50. So he's right in the middle, like all these guys are, except, of course, the great Braxton Bragg, who's fifth we talked about. There, Howard right? was fourth. Um, he was. He was. But Sedgwick, you know, he's just like a lot of these guys. He fought in Mexico. You know, he's brevet of the Mexican War. He participates in that Utah expedition thing. Um, summer of 1860, he gets sent to set up a fort in Colorado where there's no rail lines, no communication. He just has to set it up. They just stick him out there and he, that would he does suck. it. Yeah, it would. Why was Estes Park really nice up there? The Rockies, mm, you know? That's got Ooh, Oregon California. Trail written all over it. No Ooh, thanks. California. You, know? you have died of um, dysentery. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he's he's going to be a brigadier general of the U.S. Army in the Civil War. He's going to get breveted. I mean, um, he's going to get his start on the 31st August 1861. He's going to fight at Yorktown. He's going to fight at Eight Pines. We talked about that, which turns into Seven, seven Pines after pines the DeLorean hits it. <laughs> right? And, you know, he's going to fight at Antietam as an, uh, under Edward Sumner, which he's going to ironically fight Stonewall Jackson. He's going to get beaten badly. He's going to get shot three times himself. We talk about this. He ends up at Gettysburg. and We talk about his the famous story of his death we keep alluding to before at Spotsylvania, which is was an anniversary a couple of days ago on Sunday, Mary, on mm-hmm. this May 9th, where yep. he finds himself riding on a horse 
in their Confederate sharpshooters in the area. Now they're a thousand feet away, long away. And they're telling him, dude, get off the horse. There's sharpshooters out here. He has a famous quote where he says, no one could hit an elephant at this distance. And of course he gets shot right under the, under the left eye is where he gets shot. He ain't going to make it. So, But it's interesting though, because he has a really good plan here at Maurice Heights. But of course, like they all do, he's going to screw it up. He does because he, so, he doesn't leave any men at Maurice Heights. Once he doesn't leave it. men at Maurice Heights, but once he takes it, He's got a clear road to Chancellorsville at this yep. point. Early has gone southwest. There's no one in front of him as far as he knows. But here's where he screws up. He takes forever to reorganize his men. Now, if you're going to be marching into battle, how are you going to march him? You're going to march him in battle line, right? Yep. He doesn't do that. He's, he marches him in marching formation. But to Knott's Mary, not shoulder to shoulder. He's going to send him up that plank road in the turnpike. <laughs> That's how they're going to be marching. They're not not going to be spread out. When they basically run into trouble, he's going to have to stop everything and put them into battle formation, which is similar to what happened at Gettysburg with Heath on on the first day, right? So they're not ready to attack. And this whole thing is timing. You know, Hooker says, get here as fast as you possibly can because they don't want you stopping. Back at Chancellorsville, Lee, he hears that Sedgwick has taken the town again. He finds out, right? And he's preparing, he hears he's preparing to march towards Chancellorsville. So he's like, okay, well, this this could suck because I've got thousands in front of me who are outnumbering me. Now I got a force behind me coming on me. So I have to figure something out. And this, in my opinion, is Lee's best move of this battle. For the third time, he's going to split his army yep. in the face of higher numbers. So what he's going to do, he's going to he's going to send Lafayette McClaws east along that plank road to stop Sedgwick. Sedgwick, again, wasn't expecting anything, any sort of push at all. So William Brooks's division's in the lead. These are guys from like New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, in Maine, actually. He's going to be followed by Albion Howe and John Newton. But they're all marching, just marching. The first bump the Rebs are going to put in their way is by the great Cadmus Wilcox from Alabama. He's going to sort of, from Anderson's division, he's going to basically do kind of what Buford did at Gettysburg. He's going to hit He's going to fall back. You're just going to slow them down. He's going to fight that delaying type of fallback tactic. And when they get, they're going to stop and they get to a place called Salem Church. That's where they're going to set up their defenses. So Salem Church is about a quarter of the way between Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. He's thinking about a map in the middle. Mm-hmm. Four o'clock in the afternoon on May 3rd, they get there. They're going to dig in. And now Wilcox is going to get joined by three brigades under McClaws and one by Anderson. So now they got 10,000 guys. So those big number disparity we talked about is balancing now, yeah. right? You know, they, they're going to end up fighting along those um, undulations around Salem Church, Mary. Oh, and, but while this is going on, Hooker, you know what he does? Nothing. Nothing. He can't. He can't. And this again goes back to like, there's nobody in charge. Like, this is why the AOP headquarters is completely silent, you know, right after he he gets concussed. Like, they don't hear anything from him. But at Salem Church, like, it's very thick woodland that they're fighting in. And Mm -hmm. it's the union guy there is Bully Brooks who's fighting there. Yeah, William Brooks, yeah. No, yep. I, I know you've been to, I know you've probably been to Salem, but I doubt you've been to a church anytime lately. Well, I have family in Salem. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> but but Hooker's not gonna send any reinforcements. And so Sedgwick sees more and more guys coming. Hooker's gonna stay in that U-shaped defenses in that semicircle. You know, Mead Sickles, Couch, Howard, and Slocum are gonna be in that U. That's how it's gonna be. Mm-hmm. But Claus is gonna continue to hit Sedgwick at the church. By the end of the day, Lee knows now. Hooker, no matter what the hell I do, he ain't coming out of his defenses. No. He is not. So he's basically still concussed. Hooker is probably sitting in a lawn chair holding a pinwheel at this point, watching the class. <laughs> okay? 
I just pictured so, that. Oh my god. That's probably what he's okay. But Lee knows he's not doing anything. He doesn't know he's concussed or anything, but he knows I don't know what's up with this, but he ain't doing anything. So I don't want to sit around and do nothing. So Sedgwick can't get past the Confederates because those, those increasing numbers are coming. So the numbers are trying to tell the story a little bit. And he's going to basically go into a defensive situation along that plank road. So he's going to set up his right flank heading towards Rappahannock River. So he's going to just say, I got to play defense now because I, I can't push through them. So Lee now is going to send Richard Anderson. He's going to sit there and say, well, he ain't doing anything. So I got a battle going mm-hmm. on here. He's going to send Anderson and he's going to remember Jubal Early was hanging out Southwest. Yep. Whatever the hell he was doing, probably, probably swearing and burning stuff. But he sends Early, he says, now I need you. So yep. now Early and Anderson... And McClaws are all going at Sedgwick. So Sedgwick is like, what the hell's going on with this? So the numbers now have flipped to a rebel advantage. Yep. So that, 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 that advantage they had is now completely gone. The thing about it, though, is while this is going on, while the number advantage is increasing for the Rebs against Sedgwick, it's shrinking for Lee. So Hooker doesn't realize that while this is going on, he has a three-to-one advantage on Lee at this point. So, I doubt if Hooker could do math at this point. <laughs> probably not. I mean, he's probably um, a lot. He's probably about my level of math mm-hmm, with the concussion. Mm-hmm. Going into the into the morning now of, of May 4th, you know, early he's going to go back. He's going to reoccupy Mary's Heights. And he's going to do all that stuff. But now Lee is like, okay, we got something going here. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, we can do this. Because there's that, re- that diminishing returns that Lee is worried about at this battle. He knows that they have limited soldiers, limited supplies. He started to think, shit, this is this might be when I when I destroy the AOP. This could be it. Mm-hmm. Right? Because even though they're winning battles, like Fredericksburg, right? There's the Union's still escaping. So it's still it's still like, you know, the playing the whack-a-mole game. You can beat them, but you you have to destroy them. Yep. He's starting to think, shit, this this, you know, this might be it. Sedgwick sees I'm I'm getting no help from Hooker. So he's gonna say, the hell with this. So he's going to retreat across the Rappahannock over, over a Banks Ford. He's going to take off on the 5th. He's going to say, this is ridiculous. I'm not yep. going to stick around for this. Hooker is going to know, is going to see this. And he's going to say, well, without Sedgwick, I have no chance to do a friggin' thing now. So the whole thing, the whole house of cards at this point, heading into the evening of May 4th, is completely falling apart for the Union. Yeah, it is. And, and Cedric does get attacked on May the 4th. Albion Howe remarks that it was delivered with a violence that he had never before encountered. And that, as you said, that's when Sedgwick is like, fuck this, we're He's done. Like, I mean, think, think about it for a second, okay, you're Sedgwick. Now, you've got a good background, military academy, fought in Mexico, you know, he had a whole history. He's a, he's a military man's military man. Yeah. We joke about the whole elephant thing, but he had a good career. He really did. He sees all these reserves, all these troops just sitting. They're just sitting. And he sees... More and more Confederates on his front and in his rear coming at him. And he's like, you're not getting, he's begging for support. He's getting none. So he does what anybody else would do. He's just, he's like, he turns from a army general to a temp employee with a bad attitude and just says the hell with this. I'm yep. out of here. Right. Kind of like with someone at the DQ drive through and just, you know, the, they don't like there's too many too many cars. You get no help. You just say, walk out the door and say the hell with it. Yep. Drive you know, up, fucker. Been, been there. So. <laughs> That night of the May of May fourth, Robert E. Lee is sitting around and he's like, you know what? This might be it. So now he's starting to get his blood flowing. Yeah. So he's deciding. This is where it gets he, he gets kind of lucky that that the fates took did the way this did. He's thinking, you know something? I'm getting sick of sitting here. I think I want to take the initiative now. I think I want to attack him. He's gonna consolidate his army to fight Hooker. He's gonna blow that conch shell to bring all the armies together again. <laughs> right. And so 
They're going to all come and advance towards Chancellorsville. He's going to, he said, I'm going to destroy the Army of the Potomac for good right now. Yep. We're running low on supplies. We have limited men. I'm going to bring everybody. I'm going to bring Early. I'm going to bring McClaws, the freaking Rosewoods clown, <laughs> Anderson. I'm bringing the whole band, and we're going to go get this guy right now. And this is where Lee's probably, you know, it, the way it turns out is probably best that it didn't happen this way. So he wants to do a full frontal attack on Hooker. Now, don't forget, Hooker has been spending the last couple of days in this little U-shaped defensive fortress in this wilderness, right? In this horrible terrain. And he's going to attack, or he wants to attack, a huge, huge number disadvantage. Now, Lee has already lost 25% of his infantry already. Yeah. So he's, and they fought for four straight days. He has no reserve. Every soldier he has has already fought, all of them. So he's thinking, you know what? I'm going to YOLO this. I'm going to send them all in. And so after four straight days of battle, he wants to send basically his troops. The Union has five corps. The rebels have five divisions. That's how the numbers are. Mm -hmm. Just think about that, right? And he's going to say, he wants to send them in. The reality, it's like a 0% chance Lee's going to win this. But he's got his dander up, as they say. Yeah. And he wants to go. <laughs> but the numbers are going to basically, would have probably told the story on this one. And it's probably best for the Confederacy at this moment that it didn't happen. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But on the Union side, Mary, they had themselves a little war council, didn't they? They did. Yes, they're going to. So Hooker's going to call a war council. Present at this war council is going to be Reynolds, Couch, Meade. Sickles, Howard, and eventually Slocum does arrive. He's late, which is not shocking. So Hooker basically lays out what the situation is, and he leaves the men to to, to chat. Meade advocates for an attack, which given how he had been the day before with practically begging to attack, you know, this isn't that's not surprising. And second, it's seconded by Reynolds, who after this, he's exhausted. And he basically gives a proxy to Meade and said, just just tell him I said to attack. And Reynolds goes to sleep in a corner. Howard, not shockingly, wants to attack because he felt the 11th Corps had let the army down and he wanted a chance to redeem themselves. And plus, he's been left in that timeout position. Now, Meade records four of them. So the fourth is Slocum, who arrives later. The two dissenting opinions to retreat are Couch and Sickles. Couch, because he says he doesn't really know what the situation is, doesn't understand it. But later on, Couch will say that he advocated for an attack. Couch was pissed. I know. He, yeah. he, he was going to go against whatever Hooker wanted. If Hooker was giving away free ice cream, he would have said no. He, was, he, he felt that he completely and utterly let his entire army down. But also, they still thought he was drunk. They yeah. did. And that's a, that was a real deal for the back of yeah. this battle. But the other thing, too, it's, is Couch had been finally told by Hooker after the, like late in the day on the 3rd that he could have command, but he had to do this, this, and this in order to have command. Like Hooker's basically saying, you can do this, but you've got to do, you've got to make sure they retreat. And the other dissenting opinion is Dan Sickles, who for quote unquote political reasons, wants them to retreat as well. And he is not, Sickles is not happy at all. But what the men don't know is that Hooker's already made up his mind. So he comes back in and he's like, okay, so what's the consensus? And they tell him like, you know, four of them want to to attack and two of them want to retreat and hooker's like well i've already decided i'm going to retreat so reynolds he's awake at this point he's pissed and he's like what was the use of calling us together at this time of night when they intended to retreat anyhow and he's probably like fuck this well i mean hooker at that point he, he i think he was looking for a consensus but yeah, it didn't get go up. against him but he decided so they're gonna they're basically gonna pull out that night of the fifth and yeah and so they're gonna have the artillery go first and the infantry 
and Stolman's eventually going to leave too. But what's interesting is Couch, he's watching on. He's like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to fight anyway. He's thinking of him. He decides not to, but he almost kept fighting out of pure spite at that point. Yeah. Because he, I think he was going to go against no matter, no matter what Hooker was going to do. Imagine the moment they're finally leaving and you got Robert Lee is all fired up, right? He wakes up and finds out the morning of the attack that they're, they're leaving, they're gone, right? And we talked before about how this was his big moment to bag him and get rid of the whole yep. thing. He lost 25% of his own infantry. He had huge losses, mm-hmm. right? Supplies are running low. He thinks he has a chance to get them. And then Hooker is going to slide out. And he's going to escape. Can you imagine how pissed he was? How many plants and trash barrels he kicked over <laughs> at the tent when that when he found that out? He must have just been livid about that, you know. And he, you know, not only that. So he's, Hooker's got away and Jackson's wounded. And quite badly. He's got not a lot to be happy about right now because he's got this victory. But what does it matter when you've let the the AOP has managed to get away again? Well, I mean, on the positive, okay, we're doing the positive negatives. On the positive for League of the Rebels, you know, it was one of the biggest battle victories they had. It it, it was, Mm -hmm. right? You inflicted 17,000 casualties on the Union, despite being outnumbered basically two to one. So on paper, it looks really, really good. You drove Hooker off the field. You killed three Union generals, Hiram Berry, Arneel Whipple, Massachusetts guy. Mm-hmm. By the way, wasn't happy about that one, Mary, just to let you know. And, of course, Edmund Kirby. So he kills – he takes out three pretty good up-and-coming generals and basically ends the career of, of Joe Hooker. That's the positive. So if you're going to hang your hat on something positive for Lee, okay, you got that. The downside, of course, is the huge cost, right? So you've already got limited supplies, limited men. And now you've lost 13,000 guys, 22% of your entire army you've lost for nothing. Yeah. So, and of course you mentioned he loses Stonewall Jackson. And we'll talk about that in a second, his, his plight. But in what, what's interesting about losing Stonewall Jackson, which what's in, uh, something that people always talk about, it opened the door for James Longstreet to start criticizing Lee. Yeah, Because he, he hated, he hated Lee's strategy at this battle. Because he knew they couldn't afford to lose this many guys, right? So he kind of put all his chips in at the table and, got, and, and rolled snake eyes for him. And this is even without the frontal attack on the 5th. Now imagine what would have happened if he did attack. It's Pickett's charge in the woods, right? Yep, exactly. They could have been slaughtered. So even without that, Longstreet is going to start criticizing Lee for reckless strategy. On the Union side... I mean, you can imagine how they felt about it. You know, Lincoln, I know that quote you like about Lincoln. Oh, yeah. He's like, my God, my God, what will the country say? Like, he, this is not what he needed at this time. And, you know, things out at this time in the Eastern Theater, things are kind of shaky as well with like, they're just coming on to, to Chattanooga and all that. Like, things aren't aren't great there either. You know, what, you, know what else, you know what else Lincoln said, by the way? He said, if Hooker had been killed by the shot that knocked over the pillar that stunned him, we'd have been successful. Yeah, he said that too. So he Ouch. was not thrilled. So he he, no. he was pissed off. So the, the country was 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 stunned at this. Stoneman, George Stoneman's going to get fired by Hooker. Well, he Stoneman totally screws this up though. Like he was given one job, and that was to rip up the certain supply line. Um, I think it was above the Rappahannock, and he did it below. And the revs managed to repair it, and it did nothing. And Hooker said, like, he, he didn't do what I told him to do. Like, mm-hmm. he basically galloped away for a while and came back, and, and nothing came of what he had done. Meade said of Hooker after the battle, he wrote to his wife, 
Margareta and said, poor Hooker himself, after he had determined to withdraw, said to me in the most desponding manner that he was ready to turn over to me the Army of the Potomac, that he had had enough of it and almost wished he had never been born. So even Hooker is um, down on himself. And we've said the quote a few times, like, I just lost, like Hooker said, I just lost confidence in Joe Hooker. But you have to, you know, wonder how much that the concussion played into it. But maybe he did feel, I think he was starting to feel a little bit intimidated by General Lee as well. But I mean, who wouldn't, you know, especially after you're in a perfect, almost perfect position on May the 1st, and you suddenly are like, no, 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 we have to withdraw. And then I think it's May the 2nd, he finally realizes, wow, that was a huge mistake that I did well, I mean, I mean it, it ends up being a purge of this unit. So mentioned Stoneman's going to get replaced. Hooker is going to start blaming everybody, too. He takes a shot, Mary. I don't know if you know this, but he takes a shot at Oliver Otis Howard. Oh, he does. Battle. Everybody does. He's, you know, he, he in, in Hooker, his quote, which I didn't appreciate, he said, Howard was totally incompetent, a perfect old woman, but a bad man. That's what Hooker said oh, about Howard. Oh, my God. So you asked him before we started if, if Howard hated Hooker. That's your answer. Yeah, okay. he definitely did. Okay. Wow. So Couch, Darius Couch is going to resign. He's going to basically take over the defenses of Pennsylvania, which is going to be a huge issue in Gettysburg. We'll, you know, we'll talk about that down the road. But on the rebel side, obviously the big story is the death of Jackson. Now, yeah. Jackson, we're going to talk about his, his, his plight here. He's going to die about a week after the battle. And the long-term ramifications of his death are going to be huge and is still debated today. The biggest impact right off the bat is Lee is going to have to split his core into three instead of two. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at a couple months later when he's going to invade the north again, he's going to invade get Pennsylvania, Mary. You know, um, on June 30, he's going to start. He's going to end up at, obviously Gettysburg. He has three core, and so when the Union now under Meade are going to be chasing him, they're going to have to be. They'll be spread over a 55 mile radius, north, east, and west of, of the town of Gettysburg. They're going to have to pull that umbrella in and bring them all in. So people want to talk about what if Jackson was at Gettysburg. He was never going to be there because of that reason. They exactly. wouldn't even have fought there, right? But but what it was is, you know, Lee has that quote. And I don't think Lee ever got over losing Jackson. He said, um, I, in, in losing the battle. So he said about the battle, he said, I was more depressed after Chancellorsville than after Fredericksburg. And, you know, he says, and a loss was so severe again. Basically, he's saying that. After everything that they did, he didn't achieve his goals, and they lost a lot more than it was. Jackson, you want to talk about Jackson? Yep, talk about so, Jackson. Stonewall Jackson, you know he he's going to get shot, and they're going to he's going to shot three times in the left arm, once in the right hand, and he's going to he's going to lose his arm. So we talked about that last time. He's going to end up being t- taken to a place called Chandler Plantation in Virginia. He's going to go to Virginia, and Chandler Plantation is is owned by a guy named Thomas Chandler. Now. Um, he has three sons fighting in the rebel army and he's um, he puts him in this little house on his plantation. Mm-hmm. He calls, he calls Fairfields. It's just basically a, a little house, with an office, what it really is. He's going to, you know, basically put him, the, what the Rebs want to do is let Stonewall rest there for a couple of days, get healthy and then send him to Richmond. That's kind of what the plan was. It's a better, it's a better health. So Jackson's doctors and staff are going to bring him to this house on the fourth. It's about 25 miles away. It's a little bit of a, a little bit of a home. And it's interesting. Jackson, when he gets there, he meets Thomas Chandler and he's in bad shape. His arm's been cut off. He actually apologizes to him for not being able to shake his hand. Oh my God. Which I always thought was interesting. Now, what's, what's the thing about this battle with him 
is before the battle, he on April 29th, he met his daughter Julia yeah. for the first time. She was five months old. Mm-hmm. And he was in love with her. He never put her down. He used to hold her up to the mirror and say, look at my pretty little Miss Miss Jackson. <laughs> you know, I mean, he just, he, he was two pieces. He just could not believe how much he was in love with his daughter. Well, Jean. he loved children. That's one thing I've read about Jackson. Right. He loved children. Yeah. So he sees her for the first time. And so eventually he's going to end up at this house. Well, I mentioned that for a reason, but that'll come up here in a little bit. But the doctors are going to bring him there. They're going to have five different doctors working on him. Um, the chief surgeon, a guy named Dr. Hunter Holmes McGuire, who's also the guy who cut his arm off. Yeah. He's going to be the one who's going to be basically taking care of him. He's going to remain there for all six days. The doctor's going to come and go. Around this time, his wife, Mary Anna, and Julia are going to show up. And they're going to get there on the 7th. They're going to get there to visit him. And they're going to, and she, Mary, Mary is going to spend most of the time with, with, with Tom. They're going to basically by his bedside. Jackson, he's he's not upset about himself. He's actually upset by the death of a guy named John, by E. F. Uh, Paxson, mm-hmm. who was in charge of the Stonewall Brigade, was killed a couple of days before. Um, he was upset by that. It was around this time on the seventh when when his wife uh, Mary gets there, McGuire is going to pull her aside and say, "Here's the deal. He's got pneumonia. Not good. Yeah. Okay. They're going to basically turn that office into a bedroom." Almost like a like have a vigil for him. They're gonna mm-hmm. make they're gonna make a they're gonna put a bed in there. They're gonna put a clock that's still there you know, in there, and they're gonna try to make it more cheerful for him. Jackson's conditions on the tenth are gonna get really bad. They're gonna take a real down downward turn, and they all know at that point it's completely hopeless. They know mm-hmm. that he's not gonna make it. Now it happens to be a Sunday, May tenth. The doctor's gonna is gonna tell his wife he's not gonna survive the day. This is gonna be it today. Yeah. So his wife tells Stonewall. Which I don't know why if I, I would do that. But she tells him, the doctor says, you're going to die today. And he has that quote where he's like, you know, he says, well, basically, you know what? I always wanted to die on a Sunday. So I'm at peace with this. About 3.15 in the afternoon on the May 10th, he's going to basically, he's going to be sitting there. He's going to be in and out of consciousness. And he's going to start to smile and talk. And then he's going to kind of get a little bit gloopy a little bit. He's going to start talking about E.P. Hill and ordering troops around. But then he's going to have that famous quote right before he dies. Yep. You know? cross, I'll let you say it. Well, I was going to say he's going to sit there and he's going to he's going to sit there and say he's going to smile. He's going to, he, they say he smiled and went to a place of pure peace. And he said, "Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees." And then he died. You know, if last words are a big thing back in the Victorian era, yep. so that's what probably what it was. You can't overestimate the loss of what that was, no. and not just because of for Lee. But because of what it did to the Army of Northern Virginia yeah. systematically and organizationally after that, and they really never recovered from that. They never did. And his loss, too, was felt in the North as well. Like, they they knew who Stonewall was. He obviously had a reputation. And um, Howard actually writes about his death in his memoirs, and he says, It was in the forest that the brave, energetic, and successful Southern leader fell. Jackson's death was more injurious to the Confederate cause than would have that of 10,000 other soldiers. So great was the confidence he had won. So deep was the reverence of citizen and soldier for his character and ability. So mm-hmm. there's obviously a respect, I think. And that's one thing I've noticed about the more we study this. Um, I've noticed that there's respect for soldiers. They have respect for each other on either side. The commanders do. It's clear that Jackson was respected by the the Union soldiers as well. I mean, I'm sure Howard respected him too because he knew that Jackson was like huge into religion, like he was as well. But it's clear that they they finally knew mm-hmm. of him, like they did know of him, and he was he was probably one of the ones you did not want attacking you, right? Like, 
I can't imagine how Howard felt on May the 2nd, and, mm-hmm. and it's Jackson. So I know we're going to drop off here pretty soon, yeah. but you're going to have both armies in the East kind of go through a really metamorphosis in a real quick time. So yep. on the Confederate side, we, we talked before, they're going to split their two cores. We were at Longstreet and Jackson to three, where you're going to have AP Hill's going to take over with Richard Ewell. Mm-hmm. And they're going to, of course, they're going to keep Longstreet. On the Union side, they're eventually going to replace Hooker. And they're going to, they're, they're going to get him out of there. They're going to move him out. They're going yep. to promote George Meade. Yep. Now, dur- during this time, we mentioned before about how the supplies are running low for the Confederacy, right? Lee had to get the hell out of Virginia. Yep. He had to. Since he couldn't bag hooker in the army he had to make a plan so he's going to go to davis and say i need to go on a shopping trip into pennsylvania and we'll we'll try to fight them there but i need to resupply yeah he's going to do it he's going to spread his army out like we said and that's going to be what's ultimately going to end up is the gettysburg campaign that we're going to talk about which is going to continue to begin really what's that downfall of william the army north of virginia at that point yeah like right now they're kind of they're starting to rise up and obviously they have the high water mark and pickets charge and all that but i do have some stuff to tell about the union side of it before we wrap up just how horrific of a battle that chancellorsville was like i mean may the third was the, the second bloodiest day of the civil war howard said of it chancellorsville was a dreadful field the dead were strewn through the forest and open farms the wounded had often to wait for days before someone would come sometimes it never came so there was wounded that were left out there to just die no help came for them like that's how bad it was at chancellorsville and i think that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot with Chancellorsville is you just you hear about the 11th Corps, you hear about Jackson, and then you don't hear about this aftermath. And Howard writes that he doesn't remember a gloomier period during the Civil War than the months that followed the disasters of Chancellorsville. So you have the AOP kind of, I, I don't think it was as bad as what it was at Fredericksburg. But I think Howard is writing from the perspective of the obviously the 11th Corps commander whose corps got completely mm-hmm. routed, of course, it's going to be gloomy. Um, he also tells the story of one of his staff members, Captain F. Dessar, who was killed near him while he's trying to rally the panic-stricken troops. And this Captain Dessar had actually tried to resign out of the 11th Corps staff because his wife had, from he was from New York, his wife had wanted him to come home. She just didn't feel right about him fighting and or being there. He submitted his resignation and Howard had basically said, no, I, I don't want you to resign. We're about to go into battle. So he stays and he gets killed. Howard said, my heart was deeply pained at his loss and sympathy with his stricken family. Dessar is an example of that dreadful sacrifice made in the cause of the national unity and of human liberty. But the other thing to mention too, before we wrap up, is going into the Gettysburg campaign. We've talked about Lee going into the Gettysburg campaign, but we have the Army of the Potomac going into the Gettysburg campaign. You have Hooker, who obviously his core commanders are going to be questioning his ability to command the entire AOP. But you also have two men, Sickles and Howard, who are going to be carrying the ghost of Chancellorsville with them into into the Gettysburg campaign. I know there's (laughs) – Howard does take a lot of shit (laughs) for this. And it has been said of him that he never stood up for his men, you know, that he never – really rallied behind the, you know he had a lot of german troops and he didn't really fit in with them very well but it was soon after chancellorsville that howard was sent a letter by one of his friends who was very high up in the army of the potomac howard doesn't give his name in his memoirs but this person said that howard should leave the 11th corps and try and find command somewhere else and this person said the first thing they will do when placed in position will be to look behind them and the accidental just discharge of a musket in the rear will produce another panic, another disaster, another disgrace to yourself, to the troops, to all of us. And Howard 
obviously doesn't leave. And he wrote in his memoirs, I would not believe it. I courted another trial for the command other than that terrible wilderness. I was more than obliged to raise my eyes above the criticisms and well-meant advice of my companions in arms. I looked to the great shepherd for his care and guidance. As a result, in the end, nay, in the very campaign so soon to begin, my judgment was justified. So I think here he is standing up for his men. He is saying, I'm willing to give them another try. He's been told by someone in the AOP obviously a friend of his, he's not naming his name in his memoirs, being told by a friend to resign. And you and I were talking about this beforehand. And who did you say that friend probably was? I think it was probably Governor K. Warren. Yeah. Realistically. That's that's what I've heard. And I think that it probably was Governor K. Warren. And I think the reason that Howard doesn't put his name in his memoirs is because he was friends with Warren and Warren's reputation had been tarnished enough and he didn't want Warren's name attached to that letter. But I think this is a pretty good example that Howard is going into the Gettysburg campaign and he's got the backs of his men. I think what's going to be interesting too is, is the only, as bad as Howard was, yeah. perception was, he doesn't get replaced, right? Nope. The only, the only core commander vacancy is going to be Darius Coach, who's going to yeah. quit. And they're going to promote Howard Field Hancock. Old Winnie is going to be the one who's going to be taken over. So it's going to set up that Gettysburg campaign with virtually the same players for the most part. Now, Meade is going to get promoted, obviously. George Sykes is going to get promoted, yep, obviously. To, so, to so, core, yep. so, so there really is two core players yep. in place. But, but it's, um, it's going to be interesting. But I think at the end of the day, we'll go back to what we said last week. Was this Lee's greatest moment or was it Hooker's worst that made Lee look better or is it somewhere in between? I think it's probably somewhere in between, but Lee and yeah. Lee and Jackson are both brilliant here. You can't deny that. And I mean, and I'm not going to, I mean, I know what I just said about Howard and all that, but Howard does screw up here. He, he <laughs> Any more breaking news, Detective Fincher? <laughs> he does. I don't want to come away looking oh, okay. like an apologist for him or saying he was brilliant, but he wasn't. But, but getting back to your point, I think it was like, it's somewhere in between. Lee and Jackson are brilliant here. A lot of people think that the only reason why Lee was good at this because Hooker was that bad. I would agree with it. I, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's a situation where Lee read the room. I think it was Jackson's best day. It was. Yep. You know, getting shot by his own troops notwithstanding. Yeah. But I mean, overall, his aggressiveness. But you gotta you gotta give him credit. And I think Lee saw the writing on the wall. I think it's probably best for his army and his legacy that Hooker did leave on the fifth, because I think they would have got slaughtered. I think they would have got mowed down. Yeah. But you know, you never know. And so he lives to fight another day. He's going to, like I said, he's going to convince Davis they need to go to Pennsylvania. The rest, as they say, is history. Yep. Go on his big shopping trip. You've got it. So what's next? So next week, we are talking with our friend Eric, who wrote um, Black Iron Mercy. We are going to be talking about the Iron Brigade, just sitting around and having our usual kind of barroom sort of chat about the Iron Brigade. And we also have our roundtable next Wednesday night, May 19th. So if you've never been part of that, it's basically just like our Facebook lives, very casual discussion. We don't have a set topic, but it's via Zoom. So people have a chance to talk and just hang out and stuff starts at six o'clock and goes till around 730 or eight o'clock. So if you've never been before, just send us an email info at civilwarbreakfastclub.com and we will be sure to send you the Zoom invite. And also, Mary, our live is now officially sponsored by the great TR Historical. So we made that big announcement on our live the other day. So yeah. in case you haven't, unless you, in case you aren't on our live for some inexplicable reason, <laughs> our live is now sponsored by, by Dave Boussier and TR Historical, yeah. which is really, really cool. So we're having fun with that. All right. So off we go. We're going to hang with Eric Schleinlein. 
Next week, we're going to talk a little Iron Brigade, talk a little Gibbon, a little Rufus Dawes, probably talk a little Black Iron Mercy. That'll be a fun conversation. He's a good dude. He's someone who I think, um, someone who knows his stuff. Yep, exactly. So anyway, thank you to all of our listeners for your support. These 39 episodes. I can't believe we're coming up on 40. And thank you to you, Darren, for being the awesome co-host you are. Thank you for that employee discount. There's nothing better than a peanut butter cup blizzard. It's a lifetime discount. The way, you, the way you sent that down, that, that EQ down here in the States, I walked up there and said, Mary sent me. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, she's come a long way since the Frosty Queen. <laughs> anyway, so off we go. We look forward to talking to you soon. So, Mary, we'll see you Saturday. As always, the pleasure, as they say, was all yours. And um, we look forward to talking to everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you, as they say, on the other side. See you guys later. Peace. Oh. Bye.